So for the last several weeks, we've been going through the book of Habakkuk. And last week, uh, we looked at really one singular point that Habakkuk was trying to teach us. And we're going to do the same thing this morning and then the same thing next week. In these few verses, there's really three prominent points that God is trying to get across to us. And I didn't want to spend one day on all three points. I wanted to give each of them uh, the time that they deserve for us to learn this. And I, I can't preach for four hours, so we're doing it in three weeks. So this morning we're going to look at another singular point that the, the book of Habakkuk teaches us. But I want to remind us where we are in the story and what we looked at last time we were in the book of Habakkuk. Now in Habakkuk, the prophet is questioning God as to what he is allowing to happen in the nation of Judah. Now remember during this time, Habakkuk has seen the nation of Judah go through an incredible revival that he had prayed years for. The nation was in idolatry and it was in, 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 in all kinds of uh, false idol worship and Habakkuk had prayed to God and begged God to send revival and then through the king Joat, Josiah, Josiah becomes king. He finds in the temple, he finds the word of God, him and the high priest read it. They're heartbroken about what they read, and they call for a national revival, and the entire nation gets back to God. The, the temple is restored. The sacrificial system is restored. Everything's as it was supposed to be, and Habakkuk is just ecstatic that he has seen this incredible awakening in his time. But then Josiah dies, and one of his sons take over, and everything that Josiah had accomplished for God is taken away. The idols are brought back in. They are beginning to do idol worship in the temple. They are having false prophets and false gods all throughout the land. And Habakkuk, he, he's, un, he's, un, he's, he's confused. He's angry with God for allowing these things. And he's, he's questioning God. He's saying, God, how can you allow your people to live like this? How can you allow the nation to, to go into much, such sin and such wickedness? Why aren't you doing anything, God? Lord, why are you idle? And God comes to Habakkuk and says, I'm not idle. I'm not letting this go. As a matter of fact, I'm sending the Chaldeans. And he tells him, he goes, you remember the Chaldeans, those, that wicked and terrible nation. I'm sending them to Judah and they're going to conquer the entire nation. They're going to take the nation into captivity and they're going to punish the sin of Judah. It's not the answer Habakkuk wanted because he wanted God to deal with those people, not him. And now he's in a position where God said, Habakkuk, I'm, I'm going to do something and it's going to hurt you too. The people that still stand for me, the people that still love me, the people that still worship me and are crying out for revival, I'm going to send judgment to the entire nation and they're going to suffer because of everyone else's sin as well. So Habakkuk, he doesn't like this answer. So he, he begins to kind of backpedal and saying, oh God, you're too holy. You would never do that, God. You would never punish the righteous with the unrighteous. And Lord, surely you would never use the Chaldeans, these wicked people, to punish us because you wouldn't use wickedness to punish wickedness because the and the Chaldeans, they're just going to glorify in their own strength and their own gods, and you won't get any praise. So, God, I don't think that's the best idea. And then last week in chapter 2, we saw Habakkuk. He basically goes to God and he says, God, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go out into the wall of the city, and I'm going to stand on the wall of the city, and you're going to tell me what you're going to do because I don't like your plan, and I think I know better. So we're going to discuss this, and I'm going to tell you how you should do these things. And that's, that's really, we look at that and we think, how can he be so bold? 
How can it be so brazen to, to go to the creator of the universe and say, you're wrong, you need to listen to me. But if we really think about it, that's what we do in our life when things don't go our way. God, I don't like that, that my, my, my spouse is sick and I, you need to change something. God, I don't like that I'm dealing with this at work and, and you're doing wrong here. I love you and I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to be good by you, God, and I'm, I'm suffering punishment. I'm suffering suffering because, Lord, that's not right. You need to fix this. We may not audibly say it, but that's how we feel. And we saw last week the reason Habakkuk felt this way is because he thought, like we think, that he had unlimited potential. In our society, they, they, they love mankind. We think we can do anything. We can send men to, the Mar to Mars to live on Mars and you know, colonize the moon. I remember, I think it was the last election or I don't know, maybe two ago, Newt Gingrich was talking about colonizing the moon. I'm like, why do we want to colonize the moon? Well, because we can. Well, that's just stupid to me, but okay. But, you know, we think we can do all these things. We think, man, we are mankind. We can do anything. But God was showing Habakkuk, and we saw throughout the scriptures, that man is not unlimited. We are very limited creatures. We're limited in time. If you looked at all of the human history from the beginning where God said, let there be until now, if you condensed it down to an hour, you're here for like a few milliseconds. That's it. A few milliseconds you're here and then you're gone. We are extremely limited by our time. We're limited by our vision. You have no idea what's going on in your home right now. I mean, you may have some idea your dog's probably sleeping on the couch, but it could probably be eating the couch and you wouldn't know until you get home. Why? Because you don't know these things because you're, you're limited in your vision. We don't know what's going on in other places of the world. The only thing that we really know what's going on exactly is right here in this room. You don't even know what's happening with your kids down in children's church. Now, you think, well, you have some idea and you hope what's going on, but you don't really know. See, we're limited in our vision. We're also limited in our successes. Everything man tries to do to make life better, we end up making it worse. We looked at the Internet. The Internet, an incredible tool, wonderful tool. It can help us. You know, you, can, you, you honestly, if you wanted to, never have to leave your home. You can have food delivered to your house. Amazon will bring you milk now. I mean, they'll deliver groceries to your door. You don't, you don't ever, and look, I love that during, during Christmas shopping. If I can have it delivered to my door and I don't have to go out in the crowd, I don't care if it's more expensive. I'm doing it because I hate going shopping. And the internet has made life so much easier. You can just get in your car and tell your car where to go and it'll give you directions. And it's made it incredibly easy for us. But it's also brought some extreme wickedness into our culture. Pornography and abuse and all these things are just, just higher than they've ever been. Why? Because of internet. Because man tried to make something good, and we ruined it. Look at antibiotics. We make antibiotics to kill bacteria. What do the bacteria do? Get stronger. So what do we do? Make stronger antibiotics. What do the bacteria do? Get stronger. So we're making stronger and stronger antibiotics to kill stronger and stronger bacteria until eventually we've created a super bacteria that wipes out humanity. Why? Because we tried to stop a cold. We tried to do good, and we ruined it. We are extremely limited. So with all that said, let's look at God's response to Habakkuk's bold statement of God, you're wrong, I'm right, let's do it my way. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 2. And the Lord answered me and said, write the vision 
and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. What God just said there is, Habakkuk, I, I just told you what I'm going to do, and you said you didn't like it, so here's my plan. I want you to write down what I said, but don't write it in ink. Don't write it in pencil. That word table there, so he goes, write it in stone, because it's not changing. So that he that reads it may run. He goes, because this is, this is meant to cause fear, because what I have said is going to happen. So look at this in context. God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to send the Chaldeans to judge the land. And Habakkuk says, no, God, you can't do that because I don't like the plan. I don't like what you're going to do. And God says, hey, listen, I want you to write down what I'm going to do and write it down in stone so you don't forget. He was telling Habakkuk, I'm not changing my mind because you don't know better than me. Let's continue in verse number three. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry. Wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. See, what God is telling us and Habakkuk in these two verses is we are completely different from God. We are extremely limited in our time, in our vision, in our success, in every way we are limited, God is unlimited. He's not constrained by the issues of time. He's not limited in his vision, and he is not limited in his success. And so he is trying to teach Habakkuk that what he tells us is going to happen, and the events that we go through, the pain, the suffering, the trials, the tribulations, we may not like them, but God knows far better than we do. And it's not our job to question him. It's not our job to doubt him. It's not our job to tell him that we know a better way. It's our job just to trust him. So God is telling us some, different, some very specific things about his abilities. First thing God's telling us is, number one, God knows everything. God knows everything. Now, I know some of us here think we know everything. I have a sister-in-law that thinks she knows everything. But she doesn't. She gets very mad at trivia when she loses and blames a trivia game instead of her just not knowing the answer. Why? Because she thinks she knows everything. But God knows everything. See, God tells Habakkuk to write down what's going to happen in stone because God said, I know what's going to happen in tomorrow or the next day or the next year. Or the next. Just write it down because if I say it, it's going to happen because I knows everything. He goes, I know the beginning and the end because he is eternal. He, he was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end. And this concept is seen throughout scripture. So turn over to Genesis chapter number 15. Genesis chapter 15. Now, in Genesis 15, we want to start in Genesis 12, and I'm not going to make you turn there. But in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham. And God tells Abraham that he is going to make him an incredible nation. He says, Abraham, I want you to leave where you're at. I want you to leave the Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to give you kids, so many that can't be numbered. And it's going to be awesome. The whole world is going to be blessed through you and your family. Now, at this time, Abraham is 75 years old. He's married to an old woman who does not have any kids and cannot have any kids. 
And here God tells him, Abraham, leave where you're at. Go to where I'll show you. You're going to have a bunch of kids, and it's going to be great. And Abraham says, I believe God, and I'm going to follow God. And he, he strikes out, leaves everything he knows to go obey the Lord. Now look at Genesis 15, starting in verse number 1. So that after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord, God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. So Abraham is questioning God. He's saying, God, you made me this promise back there, but here's the reality. The reality is I'm pretty old. Sarah ain't getting any younger either. We don't have any kids. There's, there's really, there's, there's, no prom, there's no hope of us having kids anytime soon. And Lord, the way it is right now, my cousin, Eliar Damascus, he's going to receive my inheritance. He's going to get everything I have because you've not given me what you promised me. He goes, God, you said one thing, but the reality is a different story. Look at what God tells him in, in chapter uh, 15, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. Talking about his cousin, Eliar Damascus. This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord. I brought thee out of the earth of the Chaldees to give thee this land and to inherit it. So God tells Abraham, he goes, Look, Abraham, you don't know what's going to happen. Your knowledge of all time and space and your knowledge of what's going on is very limited. But I know everything, and I know that you're going to have so many kids, they're going to outnumber the stars, and your entire world is going to be blessed through your offspring. He goes, I said it, and I mean it, and I know it's going to come to be because I know everything. Let's keep going in verse number 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance." And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the two pieces. So here God is telling Abraham, and he's telling us, that God has not only knowledge of the past and the future, God is in those places. See, we have a hard time. We think, well, well, God knows what's going on tomorrow. No, God is in tomorrow. So God is telling Abraham, I know what's going to happen in 400 years because I'm there. I've already, I'm already existing there, and I know what's going to happen. I know everything. See, God, Abraham's limited by time. We are limited by time, but God is not. He's in the past. He's in the present and he's in the future all at the same time. So he tells Abraham, not only are you going to have a son, but he's going to have a son, and they're going to have sons, and they're going to have sons, and it's going to be an incredible nation, 
but they're going to be taken captivity by this, this powerful nation. For 400 years, they're going to be slaves, but they're going to, they're going to be let out. And they're going to leave captivity. They're going to have all the substance of the nation that captured them. And they're going to have incredible wealth. And they're going to come back to this land, this land that I promised you. And I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to use them to, to destroy the Amorites and to, to judge the Amorites. And, and this is what's going to happen for the next 400 or so years. So God gave them, God's outside of the constraints of time. He knows everything because he is in every time at the same time. He tells Abraham, here's what's going to happen for the next 400 years or so, and it happens. Exactly like God said. Why? Because God knows everything. That's why he can tell Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you may not like what I just said, but write it in stone because I know what's going to happen. God knows tomorrow. Not like we do. You know, we know tomorrow like, well, tomorrow I might... You know, if it doesn't rain, I may mow my grass. If it does rain, I'll, you know, I don't know, play video games. I don't know what I'll do. But it's like we know tomorrow because we got the, you know, we, I, I know what I'll do. I have some idea of what I'll do tomorrow. See, God doesn't know tomorrow like we know tomorrow. God knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow because God is already there. In Matthew 24, Jesus and the disciples there in Jerusalem visiting the temple. And the, temp, the disciples comment on how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus says, it's not going to be here much longer. The day's coming pretty soon where every stone will be, just, will be taken over and be toppled over in this temple and, and not one stone will lay on the other. And in 70 AD, Rome came in, conquered Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple just like Jesus said. Again, if all of human history is condensed into an hour, you are here for a couple milliseconds, but God's there for the whole hour. You know, watch, let's watch an hour-long TV show together. You get one millisecond of viewing time. I get to view the whole thing, and let's debate what's gonna, what happens in the show. I'm going to know better because I saw the whole thing. That's what God is telling us. God says, I know better than you. I know more than you because I'm here for everything. I am here for the whole hour, so I know what's going to happen. When we question God, we've got to remember we are limited by time. He knows everything. We don't. He is limited. We are limited. He is not. So we see God knows everything. Secondly, we see God sees everything. As we saw last week, we are very limited by, our vi by vision. We only know what's happening right here around us. We don't, know, we don't know what's going on in the parking lot because there's walls and windows up. We don't know what's happening downstairs. We don't know what's happening at home. We are limited by our vision, but God sees everything. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon says here, says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less is this house that I have built it? So Solomon has just built the temple for God and he's dedicating it to the Lord. And the Jews, they lived in the, with the understanding that God dwelt in the temple. He dwelt in the holy of holies in the mercy seat. And that's where the presence of God was. But Solomon understands, he goes, God, you're not dwelling in this, this little, this, this room we've built for you because you can't be contained there. Your presence is here, but your presence isn't just in the mercy seat or in the temple. Your presence is everywhere. You know, David said this as well in Psalms chapter 139. He said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. 
If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. David says, wherever I go, God, you are there. In every crack and crevice of creation, God is there. There's nowhere we can go where God doesn't see everything that's going on. He sees everything because he is everywhere. There is no hiding from God. There's no darkness that he can't see through his light. There is nowhere you can go where God is not already there and he sees everything that is happening all the time. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, he said, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father knowing. Jesus says, God even knows when a bird dies. Why? Because God knows everything. God sees everything because God is everywhere all at the same time. You see the contrast between us and God. We are limited in our time. We are limited in our vision. He's not. He's unlimited in both of them. God is eternal. God sees everywhere at once. And that causes some friction between us and God. Put yourself in Habakkuk shoes. You've cried for revival. God sent revival. Suddenly that revival is gone and the nation's worse than it was before. So you go to God and say, God, you need to do something. And God says, oh, I'm going to do something, Habakkuk. I'm going to judge the entire nation. I'm going to send the Chaldeans to judge and put you entirely into captivity. And you, you, you're, going to, you're going to suffer because of this. And he tells God, you can't do that because you're holy. You can't punish the good and the bad. And I know better than you. See, they have the friction because Habakkuk couldn't see everything that was going on. He couldn't see that because of the captivity of the Chaldeans, the nation would turn back to God, that they would get back in relationship with God, and they would cry out for revival, and they would repent of their sins. He could, all he could see was the pain he was going to suffer. He said, God, I don't want the pain, but God's telling him, Habakkuk, you've got to trust me because I see everything. I see what's going to happen in the next hundred years when the nation cries out to me, not just one or two of you, but everyone realizes they need God and the entire nation comes back to me. There's friction because we don't see the whole thing. We don't see the whole plan. Because of our limited perspective of time, in our limited perspective of events, we don't understand God's plan. God knows everything, God sees everything, he is everywhere, and he exists outside of our concept of time. You know, we have a lot of movies and TV shows that are dedicated to time travel. And they're kind of interesting. You know, you can't go back and see yourself in the past because it causes a rip in the space-time continuum or whatever. We have all these concepts. And I've, I've heard, actually had scientists, which kind of scare me, talk about how time travel is possible. And time travel is like a, like a folded-up piece of paper and all this kind of stuff. And we, we're fascinated by time travel. But God exists in every time at the same time. We, he exists in all time at once, and we have no way to comprehend that because tomorrow isn't a place that God knows about. Tomorrow is a place that God is. 
You know, what does that do for us who suffer from fear and anxiety? Because we understand that whatever we're fearing about tomorrow, God's already in tomorrow and he's already dealt with it and he's already there ready for us with grace and mercy that we, know, that we need. He is already there. He is a loving, faithful God who will prepare us for what is to come. God sees everything. God knows everything. And that brings us to our last point. God does good in everything. Not only does God know everything and see everything, but he is good and his work is good in everything that he does, even sending a wicked nation to conquer Judah. Even sending pain, God is good in everything. No one understood this better than Joseph. Of course, not Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, but Joseph of the Old Testament. Joseph, of course, was the great-grandson of Abraham. He was the son of Jacob, and he had 11 brothers. And Joseph, his, his brothers, him and his, his 11 brothers, they made up the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the beginning of the promise of God for Abraham to be seen and be fulfilled because of all these kids having kids. They become the great nation that God promised Abraham he would be. But Joseph was his dad's favorite, and everyone knew it. And when you got 11 brothers, and they know your dad's favorite, it causes some friction. His brothers... The Bible says his brothers hated him. They hated him so much, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to kill him. This was, you know, pre-CSI days, no DNA. You could kill a guy, put him in a pit and say, oh, I guess a bear got him. And no one's going to know any difference. They're like, you know what, we're going to kill this guy. And then here's Joseph coming to, to spy on them and kind of report back to dad about how they're misbehaving. They say, all right, here's the time to kill And they say, you know what, let's not kill him. Let's make some money off of him. So they take him, they, they sell him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt as a slave. They tell his dad, hey, dad, I guess Joseph's dead. Oh, well, what are you going to do about it? Can't do anything. So jo Jacob thinks his son is dead. Joseph is sold into slavery to a man named Potiphar, a powerful Egyptian officer. And he's, he's, he's put in, 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 in as a slave, but God has favor. And he has favor in God's eyes and God blesses him. And Potiphar sees Joseph, and he sees that he's got the favor of God in his life. So Potiphar puts him in charge of everything. Says, Joseph, you, this Hebrew slave, you can run my entire household. And so Potiphar, he goes, he goes to, to the capital for business, leaves Joseph at home in charge of all the other slaves, in charge of everything. Says, Joseph, you have, you have free reign over everything in my house but my wife. Good deal for Joseph. But, Joseph, but Potiphar's wife wasn't a good woman. She had the hots for Joseph. Time and time, multiple times, she comes to Joseph and says, hey, Joseph, Potiphar's gone. Let's me and you get together and have an affair. Now, Joseph was a good man. He goes, no, no, no. Potiphar trusts me with everything. So keep my hands off you. Plus, you know what? It's a sin against God. So I don't want to sin against Potiphar. I don't want to sin against God. So no. She keeps coming to him. He keeps saying no. Well, one day, Potiphar, Joseph is in, in the bedroom cleaning up some stuff. Joseph's not very smart. He, he shouldn't have been there in the first place. But Potiphar's wife traps him tries to force him to have an affair. So Joseph freaks out, takes off his coat she's hanging on to, takes, takes off his clothes and runs away from her to get away. Well, she's furious. So she, she starts telling people, this Hebrew slave tried to rape me. Potiphar comes home. She goes, he tried to rape me. Here's the proof. I got his clothes. He stripped down and tried to take advantage of me when you were gone. So Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. The, the word for prison in the Greek and the Hebrew is literally a pit. So he's in the pit, came from a pit, now he's in a pit again. But again, God had favor on him. 
the, the leader of the pit sees Joseph's blessings, sees how God blessed him and says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in charge of the pit. So now Joseph is in charge of this prison. Well, through the time and events, the, the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh get thrown into the pit with Joseph. They go to sleep one night. They both have bad dreams. They get up, they tell Joseph to dream, and Joseph says, hey, let me, let me tell you what those dreams mean. God's given me the, the ability to interpret dreams. Let me tell you what they mean. He looks at the baker and says, I hate to tell you, but by the end of the week, Pharaoh's going to kill you. Stinks to be you. Have a good day, bro. Looks at the cupbearer and says, your dream means that in, in three days, you're going to be restored to your position with Pharaoh. When you get there, put in a good word for me. By the end of the week, everything Joseph said was going to happen, happened. The baker is hanged. The cupbearer is restored to his position with Pharaoh and immediately forgets about Joseph. For two years, Joseph sits in the pit till one day Pharaoh has a bad dream. He dreams that seven cows, big, fat, sturdy cows are now eating. And then seven skinny, decrepit cows come out of the water and eat up the seven big cows, but they don't get any fatter. Kind of wakes up, thinks, whew. No more burritos for dinner before bed for me. Goes back to bed the next night. Has another dream very similar. Seven big fat ears of corn are eaten by seven skinny ears of corn. And he just, he, he's confused. He starts talking to his advisors, starts talking to all his magicians. They have no idea what's going to go on. And the cupbearer says, hey, wait a minute. There's a guy that I know that can interpret dreams. If he's still alive, we should get that dude here. So they go, they go to the pit. There's Joseph still alive. They bring him up. They tell Joseph the dream. And Joseph says, well, here's, here's a dream. For seven years, Egypt's going to have incredible blessing. More food than we know what to do with. But after that, we're going to have seven years of famine that are so severe, they're going to devour the seven years of plenty, and we're going to forget about all that. So here's what you should do, Pharaoh. Put someone in charge who can store up food for the seven good years so that when the famine hits, you got food for the seven bad years. And Pharaoh says, hey, you seem like a smart guy. You do it. So F Joseph has gone from prison to the second most powerful man in the world. Incredible picture of God's grace on his life. Well, time goes on, the famine hits. Back home, Joseph's brothers, Jacob and the rest of the brothers, they start getting a little hungry. The famine's hitting there too. They say, hey, we hear there's food in Egypt. They think Joseph's dead. We hear there's food in Egypt. They send the boys down there to get some food. Won't go through the whole story, but you need to read it. They get down there. And Joseph, through some series of events, he reveals himself to his brothers. He tells them, hey, you remember that kid that Joseph, you sold into slavery, you thought was dead? Yeah, that's me. Now, his brothers, when he first reveals himself, they're freaking out. They're like, uh-oh, we just messed up. We sold the most second powerful most man in the world into slavery, and now he's going to kill us. But in Genesis chapter 45, look what Joseph says in verse 4. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall be neither earing or harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve you a prosperity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me here, but God. Joseph looks at the men who betrayed him, who sold him into slavery, who pretty much ruined his life. He says, you didn't send me here. God did. And he did it because he knows everything. 
and he sent me into prison to fulfill his plan. Through slavery, through false accusation, through prison, God put him in a position to fulfill all he told Abraham hundreds of years before what would happen. How could God plan that out? Why? Because he knows everything, because he sees everything, because he is everywhere at all times, and everything God does, even sending someone to prison, even sending someone to slavery, everything God does is good. Jacob dies, and Joseph's brothers, they get a little worried. They figure Joseph was just being good to him because dad's around. So after Jacob dies, his brothers send, they don't even go to Joseph themselves, they send messengers. Say, hey, your brothers want me to tell you that right before your dad died, he said you should really forgive them for that whole, you know, slavery thing. Just let it go. He, he don't want you to hurt them. And so Joseph in Genesis 50 says, fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant unto good to bring to pass as this day to save much people alive. Joseph saw that God, in his goodness, in his mercy, and in his grace, he allows difficulties in our life. He allows pain and suffering because he knows everything that's going to happen. He knows what is ahead, and even in our pain, he is doing good. That's a lesson we all need to learn and cling to. Habakkuk was learning that through the judgment, through the pain, through the conquering, God was doing good. When we don't understand what God is doing, we need to believe and trust that he is doing good. When we don't like what God is doing, he is doing good. When we don't agree with what God is doing, he is doing good. God's not limited by time. God's not limited by vision and God's not limited by success. He knows everything. He sees everything. And everything he does is good. Habakkuk was learning to trust God even in pain. That's a lesson we need to learn this morning as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.